Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Ahmad Yaqub Al-Mazmi from Princeton University. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Pamela Gupta, the author of the captivating book, Portuguese Decolonization in the Indian Ocean World, History and Ethnography, published by Bloomsbury this year in 2020. Pamela Gupta is an associate professor at Weiser, which is Witt's Institute for Social and Economic Research at the University of Witt-Waterstrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. She's the co-editor of Eyes Across the Water, Navigating the Indian Ocean, published in 2010, and the author of The Relic State, St. Francis Xavier and the Politics of Ritual in Portuguese India, published in 2014 by Manchester University Press. By discussing this book, we will revisit and think about decolonization processes across the Lusophone India and Southern Africa, focusing on Goa, Mozambique, Angola, and South Africa, waving together cases from the Indian Ocean, but also the Atlantic using five interconnected themes. Pamela Gupta considers decolonization through the the twined lenses of history and ethnography, access through written, oral, visual, and eyewitness accounts of how people experienced the transfer of state power. She looks at the materiality of decolonization as a movement of peoples across vast oceanic spaces, demonstrating how it was a process of disposition for both the Portuguese formerly in power and ordinary colonial citizens and subjects. Speaking from Johannesburg on the shores of the Indian Ocean, welcome Pamela to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book today. Hi, Ahmed. Thank you so much for having me on this uh, as part of this conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Um, sure. Okay, let's go. So can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is, where did you grow up? Where you went to school? How you became interested in your field of study? And if you had any influential mentors? Sure. Um, it's a great first question. Uh, so I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., My parents were immigrants from India to the States um, prior to my birth, and I went to the University of Virginia for my undergraduate studies, and I chose international relations and economics and was increasingly dissatisfied with it. Um, I took some photo classes on the side, so I was always sort of had a passion for photography, and my father actually had been a photographer as well, so I think it probably, I got a sense of it from him. Um, I also studied for a semester in Spain, which had a big influence on me later in in terms of choosing topics for for my studies. 
Um, so after my undergraduate, I actually was a high school Spanish teacher at a small international school in Sedona, Arizona. And what was fascinating about the school was that it was anthropology based. Um, and so I took, I just remember the experience of taking Japanese students who were, who were there to learn English, but then also to learn Spanish. And we had to take them for field stays with homes um, in Mexico across the border from Arizona. And this was in the early 90s. And it was just a fascinating experience for me. And that sort of led me into anthropology because the, the school itself taught anthropology starting at um, uh, ninth grade, um, all the way four years of it. So I actually started sitting in on the classes and realized it was a subject um, that suited me and my interest uh, academically. And so I sort of fell in love with it and realized that's what I wanted to do. So um, I first started out doing a master's degree in visual anthropology at Temple University. And they're one of the few programs in the U.S. at the time that had visual anthropology. And before it really took off in the U.K., I think it was a smaller uh, subdiscipline of anthropology. And um, I studied with a guy named Jay Ruby, had a big influence in terms of my work in visual and thinking through the visual and about the visual. Um, and so I went to Goa for the first time for a visit and sort of fell in love with the place and realized that was my topic for my PhD. Um, and I'll get into the, the, how I sort of came up to, with, came, developed the topic that I developed on. But, but from there, I moved then to the University of Michigan and enrolled in the Anthropology and History program, which was this amazing program in the mid-90s. Uh, I worked with Nick Dirks, Ann Stoller, um, Brinkley Messick. There were all big influences in terms of my conceptual thinking and, and trying to think around history and anthropology together, which, as, as we'll talk about, my work is very embedded in those, in those conversations and questions. Um, and I guess I, I'll just end this, this first question um, by saying Michael Pearson, of course, was a huge influence on my work. Um, I had read him all throughout graduate school, and then I'll, I'll bring him later into the conversation because um, he has become a friend and close colleague um, through through projects that we've been involved in together. So thanks for that question. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I, I've taken classes with some of the people you've mentioned, so I'd like to talk to you about sure. um, yeah. Yeah, the, the experience of writing um, history while being trained also in anthropology. Um, so your last book, The Rolex States, St. Francis Xavier and the Politics of Ritual in Portuguese India, is a historical ethnography of the complex, uh, complex nature of colonial and missionary power in Portuguese India, which explored the evolving space of a series of Catholic festivals that took place throughout the duration of Portuguese colonial rule in Goa, which is between 1510 to 1961. Um, so can you tell us a, a bit about the State and how that project led to your book, Portuguese Decolonization? So that's a, again, another great question. Um, so what I want to do to answer this question is sort of to go back to that PhD. So what happened is um, I was in this visual anthropology program, I think I mentioned at Temple University, I went to Goa for summer research and I decided I wanted to work. I went to Old Goa where the corpse of St. Francis Xavier remains um, in the Church of the Bomb Jesu. And I saw the body and I thought, this can't be a visual contemporary anthropology project. It has to be a historical one. It didn't make sense to me to approach this topic just through an ethnographic lens. Uh, and as a result of that sort of encounter and that, that image for me, I, I transferred then to this anthropology and history program, uh, or we would call it historical anthropology at the University of Michigan to, to work pre- precisely on this project. And what I really was interested in doing with this was 
I mean, you could, one of the ways I think about it, or I framed it in the book itself was to anthropologize colonialism um, and to historicize ritual, taking categories of each and sort of flipping them onto the other. Uh, and what I, and, and also, I guess another sort of driving force behind the book was I was, I sort of started out thinking maybe I wanted to be an early modernist. And I grew fascinated with the idea that this corpse was from the 16th century um, and that he was, Xavier was a Jesuit missionary. And I, I got fascinated by, by, through my readings that European saint veneration had died out, but then it got sort of revived in the colony. So I wanted to take this idea of the European um, saint and take, put him in the colony and see what happens to that sort of religious practice. Uh, and that was sort of, I guess I could say those are two of the framing devices for for the book itself. Um, and I wanted to do this long durée history uh, using an object, and that object became the corpse of Xavier himself to tell the story of a saint and a state is deeply intertwined. And I, I guess because I was invested in post-colonial studies and I was in a program where almost everyone working on South Asia worked on the Anglophone cases. And I sort of, because of my training in Spanish as a, and a language teacher, um, I found this place Goa to be sort of a, a little pocket that hadn't been studied in the way that I thought it should be. Um, and that again, ties into the idea that the Portuguese were a sort of maritime empire and had died out. Um, but again, I wanted to then turn to the land-based to think through that historiography that had been tied to the, to, to the British and see what happened to Goa as a space over this long durée period. Um, yeah, I think I'll leave it at that for that for that first for that second question. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what got you interested uh, in the Indian Ocean world and the Portuguese Empire? Um, okay, so what happened then is, so I wrote my my first my PhD, finished it, uh, completed it in two thousand five. I moved to South Africa for personal reasons, and I started out as a postdoc in the anthropology department at Vitz University, where I am based currently. Um, and when I was looking around to try and figure out what I could apply for in terms of a postdoc um, application, I realized that, of course, I, I mean, I already knew this based on my research in Goa, that Goa and Mozambique had very close ties um, historically. And I realized that this was an opportunity then to look at that um, that relationship between Goa and Mozambique over the long durée. And so I started out proposing to really look at the Goan community in Mozambique. Um, again, I, you know, Mozambique is very close to South Africa, so it was very easy to, to take a trip and, and get a sense of what was going on there with that Goan community. And that was the start of my sort of moving into Indian Ocean studies. Um, a couple other factors would be that at Vitz University, I met Isabel Hoffmeyer, and she had just started up an Indian Ocean uh, reading group. And so I joined her, her group and she, again, was, um, I would say another mentor in my life, very important in terms of, of terms of trying to, to reshape that idea of what the Indian Ocean space was and what it meant to enter into it. Um, and that's how then I got involved in organizing this conference, um, with Isabel and I had invited Michael Pearson actually to come to South Africa to, to be part of this, this conference. Um, and at the same time, he had just read my manuscript. Um, which I had submitted for publication on Relic State. So it was really exciting to have him actually in place in South Africa. And he came for a few months as a visiting professor. And so through that, we did the Eyes Across the Water book. Um, and that sort of just led me down thinking through this idea of connected histories. I, I had also worked at Sanjay Subramaniam. So he was a big influence in terms of my work in thinking about these transnational imperial spaces and thinking about the Indian Ocean world um, and thinking about the sort of 
both the borders of it and the diversity within this Indian Ocean world. And again, taking it, taking it through the sort of Lucifer um, context. Mm -hmm. um, so we often encounter the Portuguese empire and the Indian Ocean historiography as something of the 16th century, as you've alluded to, that fades in the background. Yet it continued until 1961 in India, 1975 in Mozambique, Timor, and Angola, even 1999 in Macau. So as a historian of the Lusophone Indian Ocean, can you share with us what can the study of the Portuguese empire gain from Indian Ocean world studies? And by the same token, what can Indian Ocean world studies, which is mainly Anglophone, gain from the study of the Lusophone Indian Ocean and Atlantic worlds? Yeah, again, a really great question, Ahmed. Um, so, again, I think what was really important for me was working on this book, um, Eyes Across the Water. And through that, it was sort of learning about the different kinds of frames. Um, so I'll take the example of slavery. So each sort of oceanic body of work helps you to frame the other kind of work you're doing. So, for example, slavery in the Atlantic is such a different phenomenon to slavery in the Indian Ocean. And in some ways you need the Atlantic model in order to think through what that model of slavery is for the Indian Ocean. Um, for example, my work on islands and islandness in the Indian Ocean, I framed it by thinking through the Mediterranean, which gets often left out of these conversations around the oceanic. Um, and so for me, it was about putting all these models in conversation with each other in some ways to, to differentiate both each kind of colonial pattern, but also to think across those different patterns. Um, I also, I think because I'm a student of Lusophone studies, um, I was very invested in a certain kind of historiographical debates or questions. Um, and one is that, in fact, for the Lusophone case, you really have to look at the itinerant quality of it as an empire um, and diaspora making. And that really opened up again another way to think through uh, the Lusophone case as compared to, for example, the British or French case. Um, another sort of historiographical bias that I was trying to counter in my work uh, is this idea of the Portuguese as a lesser colonial power. Um, again, this is where the Portuguese are only seen as an early modern phenomena, where and then the British and the Dutch and the French take over. And in fact, that's not the case. And so I really wanted to push that that um, that that land-based uh, impact of the Portuguese, particularly in South Asia, and then moving on to, to uh, Mozambique. And then tied to this idea of Portuguese as a lesser colonial power was this idea of their lateness of the decolonization. So, in fact, like you mentioned, the case in Macau is an astounding example. But for, you know, the third empire, the Portuguese in Africa, you know, 1975 is still very late compared to the decolonization in the 60s of large parts of British Africa. Um, and so I guess a third sort of um, historiographical bias that I've been trying to write against in my work more generally is this idea of Portuguese colonial exceptionalism, which again is tied into this idea of luso-tropicalismo, um, the writings of soci Brazilian sociologist Gilberto Freire and his ideas that, that they were a, a better form or a more benign form of colonialism, which again, of course, is not true, but it was used as a way to buttress the colonial estado um, of Portugal. And uh, Salazar himself used it very much to, to make this claim that, for example, Goa should remain Portuguese in the midst of this independent nation state, Indian nation state. Um, this exceptionalism is also tied to, to the writings of Richard Burton and this idea that the, the weakness of the Portuguese, for example, was their, um, their practices of 
converted religious conversion and um, miscegenation. And these sort of historiographical biases get get caught up in the ways in which the Portuguese perceived. I would use the example of Charles Boxer and his many writings, prolific writings on the Portuguese in India, um, that are tied into all of these sort of historiographical biases. And again, as a student of historical anthropology, I really wanted to counter, counter those if I could. Um, and then this led me into, again, the, the book, the second book that I think we're going to talk about very soon. So let's now turn to the book and its chapters. The book consists of seven chapters and a reflection at the end. The first chapter is studying decolonization. So you've mentioned that you draw on ethnography and also material culture in your research, which you call textual, visual, lyrical, and visceral landscapes. Can you tell us about the methodologies and archival sources you've used to write the book? And what are the three Portuguese empires and what sort of, sort of sources and archives are available to historians to research each one of them? Okay. Um, yeah, so this, again, this book came out of the early work on Goa and then the reframing and then moving to South Africa and then sort of reframing Goa and Mozambique. It's connected via the Indian Ocean. Um, and then as you've seen through my work, there's sort of this thread of combining historical and anthropological. It's both my training and the ways in which I'm invested in the questions that, that I want to raise. Um, and so what I wanted to do here really was to think through um, decolonization, but through five specific approaches. Um, and one is very much a carryover from my work on, on St. Francis Xavier, where I think about ritual as a historical event and an ethnographic moment. And here I want to think about decolonization the same way um, and what it means to access it in both ways simultaneously to me is an argument for making a richer analysis than, versus, than using one versus just the other. Uh, so one was these five approaches, and then one was about decolonization as a historical event and simultaneously an ethnographic moment. Um, two is to think about the materiality of decolonization. And again, this is where the Mozambique case is particularly uh, striking because of the amount of movement of people, um, Angola as well, which I'll talk about with another one of the chapters of the book. Um, but the apparatus that was involved in getting people out, getting objects, people, stuff, their things, their belongings, um, that infrastructure of decolonization, you could say. And a third is the trauma of decolonization. This is where, again, the Goan community in Mozambique comes in as this minority community that, get, that isn't told as part of the story of, of the liberation of Mozambique um, because many, were, many chose to leave, many chose to stay. And what that trauma does, and particularly for the Goans, is this double decolonization. The ways in which they, you know, some left Goa because it was become integrated into India and wanted to stay within the Sousaphone world. And then, you know, from 61 to 75, lived in Mozambique and then had to decolonize, uh, experience another form of decolonization in a very different setting, second time, and had to make choices about where to, where to stay, where to go. Um, a fourth sort of approach then in this book that I'm trying to do is, is to think beyond the national, to write what I call post-national post narratives um, and to think through what happens to, again, minority communities, again, not thinking just through metropolitan colony, but thinking about other choices and other places people choose to go to, which is South Africa in this case. Um, and then finally, and just to return to the beginning, the opening passage of your question, is to open up the types of source materials to access these narratives of decolonization. And and here I developed this idea of the visual, the lyrical, and the visceral. 
And the visual then became about the photographs of Ricardo Rangel, whose images I fell in love with and who I met personally and interviewed um, before he passed away in 2009. So I was fortunate to meet with him. And his images in some ways articulated what I was trying to write about. Uh, and so I wanted to combine, again, those visual, the visual, visuality of decolonization alongside what I call the visceral. And I want to think through the ethnographic as visceral as a form of viscerality and the ways in which we experience something and want to write through that. And then finally, I added in um, what I call the lyrical to think through the prose of someone like Mia Koto, a very important writer in, in, in Mozambique and his beautiful short stories. And he captured for me some of the, again, what I couldn't articulate. So I wanted to rub those three kinds of source materials up against each other to see what they could say together. And I think they could say more potentially through these kinds of source materials as opposed to just one. Um, yeah, I think that's answering your question. I hope I'll leave it there. Uh, yeah, it does. Um, it, and it really comes beautifully in the book um, where you flip these chapters and you encounter different voices, different uh, source material that gives you a different dimension of the same story you're telling. Um, you open this book with a Chilean Bembe's provocation and the 2015 campaign, Rhodes Must Fall. And I can't help but to think about the current political moment we live in. Um, so in your opinion, uh, why the history of decolonization matter today? Okay. Um, huge question. Great question. Yeah. So Ashil Mbembe is my colleague at Wiser. We're based here in South Africa. And so his work is obviously, he's he's been a big influence for me in terms of my own work and thinking about writing in from Africa on Africa. Um, and yeah, I mean, he has this point of, did we jump too quickly into the global condition of post-coloniality? Um, and that, for me, gave, it was a point he made at a lecture. Um, and it was right in the midst of Rosemus Fall, but I also must add in Fismus Fall, which was taking, so Rosemus Fall was taking place in Cape Town at UCT, and Fismus Fall was taking place at Vitz, the university where I'm based. And um, it was this, this, you know, it was this larger context of decolonization. And, you know, I was already working on this book project, and so it sort of, became part of this movement unintentionally. And, and that kind of opened it up even further to think about, you know, what can, I guess, to take the category of, the, of decolonization more analytically and to develop it more conceptually. Um, and, you know, I was, again, trying to write against the idea that we can just think about decolonization as opening up of the mind, but instead to think about the decolonization as an infrastructure in some ways. So, again, I was pushing against certain kinds of literatures that were opening up at the time. To, to situate my own my own sense of it, um, and I wanted to again, as a student of postcolonial studies, think about you know I had also just shifted very quickly from talking about colonialism to postcolonialism, and I really really was invested in this idea that the, the the way in which decolonization happens conditions the possibilities of the postcolonial, and I'm really wedded to that idea, and I really think that. For the particular Lucifone case of Mozambique, it was important to delineate that in order to better understand what Mozambique has gone through in that post. Um, yeah, we'll leave it there. Great. Um, you opened the chapter with, uh, with fascinating vignettes. Um, so can you tell us uh, and share uh, the vignette and maybe we can think with it about how can we as scholars also decolonize our research methodologies? Uh, yeah, I think one of, one of the vignettes I start with this idea of the Portuguese as 
was destroying the, the infrastructure of colonialism on their way out. I use toilets as a specific example. And it really, again, that, that, that vignette that was told to me, and then I also heard that story when I went to Mozambique. Um, I heard that story prior to going and when I went there to do research. I also heard that story. And it was fascinating that if, whether or not it was true or not, it was just the idea that they didn't want what they had to be left in good condition for those inheritors of their infrastructures to take over and use them. Um, and they wanted to destroy them almost in a moment of vengeance um, on their way out. And this bitterness and this loss is what sort of that vignette helped me conceptualize what I was trying to do with, with decolonization. Um, yeah, another another vignette, I think, is finding this image um, of, that I, of Rangel and this moment of a group of people reading this placard. It's taken in 1961, the day that Goa became part of India, December 19th. And I fell in love again with this image. And so to me, that was another way of articulating what I was trying to access um, uh, analytically, ethnographically, is this image of these people looking at this placard that declares that Goa has become part of India. And it's taken in Lorenzo Marx and Rangel captured it from the inside. So you can really see the sort of expressions these the sea of faces and the way in which they're looking at this image and for me that connected go on mozambique in this beautiful sort of haunting poetic way that i wanted to write um and i guess i mean you asked me how come we as scholars decolonize our research methodologies and i think one way to do that is to think outside the kinds of source materials that we typically use as historians as anthropologists and combining different kinds of source materials to to get at that intertextuality and to think of beyond the national to the transnational and to think, um, again, here the work of Thomas Metcalf's um, ideas around um, sort of connected histories is also very important. Um, and thinking, again, imperial connections and, and the shift from being a colonial subject to imperial citizen, which is what happened with many uh, Indians who moved to Africa uh, during the late 19th, early 20th century. And this this was a fundamental shift for me in thinking about subjectivity and subjecthood and the ways in which um, many of these go on to move to Mozambique um, in the 1950s, for example, really became different kind of cosmopolitan subjects as a result of this movement across the Indian Ocean. And again, that's where my work gets rooted in this, this idea of what mobility does to people um, and their subjectivities. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about the representation of the Portuguese empire and the historiography. And I was wondering what can the Lusophone decolonization teach us about the broader historical experience of decolonization in the Indian Ocean? Or is it a unique case that differs from, let's say, the Francophone and Anglophone colonialisms? Hmm, that's a hard question. Um, yeah, I think, I, mean, I think the Portuguese case is very illuminating in certain ways, and you can both Think of it as being a specific kind of Indian Ocean world. Um, and it maps out very particular nodal points, very different to, for example, the ones that the, that the French would do if you looked at where they sort of had the port cities and, and what's tied to what and what kind of things circulated within those, those imperial um, worlds of the Indian Ocean. But I also think you can use the Portuguese case to, to learn more about the other case studies precisely through looking at the kinds of materials that both are similar and different, and the ways in which these empires crisscrossed. So this is where the inter-imperial is very important, the work of Laura Doyle, or looking at something, for example, the work of Jeremy Prestold is very important to me because he's looking at these global goods that circulate way beyond just the Indian Ocean. Um, and in some ways, we need to think beyond just one ocean to think through the oceanic. 
And this is where my colleague Isabel Hoffmeyer has created this, this very new um, research program called Oce- Critical Oceanic Humanities. And it's about thinking through all of the oceans in some ways and then thinking through the materiality of the ocean and thinking submerged as well as across. So not only as a body of water for the mobility of things, but also the submerged ways in which telegraph um, pull, um, uh, what do you, what's the word for it? Telegraph uh, wiring was, was built underwater. Um, connect people via communication system. So there's all sorts of projects that could be opened up by thinking through the inter-imperial, thinking through the connected, the idea of connected histories, thinking through the post-national, thinking through the submerged histories. Mm-hmm. The book contains many beautiful images, very expressive in themselves, and you use them quite creatively in the book. So in chapter two, Entangling Decolonizations, Goa, Mozambique, and Angola, I want to start by talking about the book cover, which which really tells a story. And you interrogate this image and you ask, who are these people in the image? And what can that moment conjure when we think about decolonization as the overarching theme of the book? So can you tell us more about this image and how you've, how you've read the image? Sure. Um, I just referenced the image briefly prior to this, but I'll, I'll go ahead and, um, and go through the image again. Um, so I came across this image in Johannesburg at a photo gallery, um, Gallery Afranova, and it just sort of stared at it for a long time because um, I couldn't figure out what it was. And so it was about this idea of reading the image uh, and seeing this moment of entanglement. And it was fascinating to think that these men in Lorenzo Marx were reading about Goa's decolonization and the fact that they were so connected in a way that, that visually had been documented. And it was something I was trying to write about. And so the image itself was really beautiful. I mean, it's a sea of faces. Uh, Ricardo Rangel, um, photojournalist, Mozambican, um, was sitting inside and he took the photo. And it was a way for me of expressing what decolonization was about and the reverberations from one place to another and how that happens and how it, the ripple effect has these unintended consequences. Um, and a story I don't tell in the book that I actually wanted to have another chapter around, but I, I ended up not including it, was around what happens at this moment. And so actually what's fascinating is that then because the colonial, Portuguese colonial state in Mozambique fears India and Indians, they put Indian, non-Goan Indians in Mozambique, Lorenzo Marx at the time, in internment camps. And Rangel himself also took photos of these uh, internment camps that only got published post-independence. And so what's fascinating is, again, the reverberations around decolonization, what one place can do to another place and the ways in which they're entangled in these, these complex relationships that have to do with their, their colonial ties. Um, and that image then led me to other images of Rangel that I, again, use in different essays in the book that, uh, that I'll talk, be talking about as well. Yeah. Um, and also in the book, you've engaged uh, the latest bodies of literature on decolonization. And you've quoted bits. Who I really like this quote because it summarizes a lot of the points uh, about the Portuguese, who introduced the characteristics of Portuguese colonialism in this manner. He says there is a sort of overarching historical irony in the fact that Portugal was both the first and the last European colonial nation, first picking up coastal territory in Africa in the late 15th century and only relinquishing its hold in 1975 when Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau and Angola gained their independence. 
So in your assessment, what can the cases of the Indian Goans, Mozambicans, and Portuguese Angolans teach us about uh, decolonization as a diasporic, political, but also material process? And can you reflect on that uh, within the three conditions you outlined in writing about the Portuguese decolonization? Sure, sure, happy to answer that. Um, yeah, again, I love that Bet's quote as well. I'm glad you pointed that one out because that for me was the beginnings of my journey onto studying the Portuguese was this overarching sort of irony of the, the, the length of the Portuguese. And I found it incredible when I went to go for the first time. And I, I looked at this shriveled up corpse of St. Francis Xavier and thought, you know, how could this possibly be? And that the Portuguese had, uh, had outlasted the British in, in India was fascinating as well. And so, so that was sort of a motivating factor in terms of doing this, this long durée um, approach to thinking through the Portuguese. Uh, so with the second book, then with this, with my work on um, decolonization, uh, I realized then that I had to look within Southern Africa also because it, it wasn't a story of just simply connecting Goa and Mozambique, but I also had to bring in what was happening in Southern Africa um, precisely because you had many Mozambicans who, you know, when I was looking at where Goans were leaving in 75 and many were going back to Goa, many, some were going back to Portugal some were going to the UK, places they'd never, you know, never been or had relatives. But then I also started to ask, you know, where did the Mozambicans go? And many of the Portuguese Mozambicans didn't want to go back to Portugal because they felt that, you know, to use the word Africa, it was their home and they wanted to move to South Africa. Um, and I found the case as well for Portuguese Angolans um, who moved into South Africa post-75. So I wanted to then globalize Southern Africa along with East Africa and think through the borders South Africa is very much connected to what was happening, but not only in Angola and Mozambique, but then Namibia becomes part of the story. So it was, again, this, is, this sort of unfolding of one history and one historical pattern of migration opened up another um, pattern. And so again, it was a, this idea of diaspora making that's tied into decolonization. Um, and I think you asked me about these three conditions. Um, I kind of had outlined them, but again, this this are tied into the historical biases that that um, that I mentioned earlier about the sort of itinerant quality of the Portuguese colonial empire that one has to take into account for thinking through diaspora making and as a way of shaping the colonial enterprise more generally and, and as making it survive for such a long time because you constantly had not only the colonizers but just as much the colonized who were moving uh, within these colonial. Um, Interpose, and it's a very important way in which we need to conceptualize this, this empire. Um, and then the second, again, was this Portuguese as a lesser colonial power. Um, and again, only looking at it seriously, taking it seriously as a maritime empire as opposed to land based. And, and I wanted to again write against that. And then tied into that is again this lateness of decolonization, exactly going back to Betts's quote about the earliness and the lateness. And the fact that it lasted for such a long time. Um, and then the third one is tied into that idea of the, the exceptionalism of the Portuguese, which links into discourses around tropicalism, tropicalism um, as well as this idea that the downfall of the empire, or their, their difference from the other cultures of empire, if you want to say, is the, the facts of, of racial mixing and religious conversion, um, something that, again, I've written about Bert, Richard Burton's work because his ideas exemplify perfectly the sort of British Anglophone attitude towards the Portuguese. And that's something I've, I've also been trying to write through in some of this is how we get past those source materials, the British Anglophone influence within those source materials to look at, you know, again, now there's a huge um, 
quality, high quality scholarship coming out of Portugal itself, coming out of uh, Brazil, Mozambique, Angola, writing about these processes in many of the same ways um, that I am trying to do, and I have to give credit to, to that very much so. In chapter three and chapter four, uh, we have a lot of goans. Uh, so immigrating goans in chapter three and goans going to f- going fishing in chapter four. First of all, who are the goans, um, and uh, how did you write their entanglement with East Africa through ethnographic and life history approaches? Okay. Um, yeah, I keep uh, everywhere I go, I keep finding goans. So it's kind of like my running joke for myself. Um, I, I'll br- bring that up later when I talk about some of my new projects. But um, yeah, again, I, I knew that there was this history of Goans going to Mozambique, you know, as early as the 16th century. Um, but I wasn't interested in doing that kind of long array project with this with this book. So um, I, I decided I wanted to do a more contemporary project and, and find <coughs> excuse me find those actual Goans in Mozambique in Maputo and see what they were doing. Um, Excuse me. So I went to Maputo and hung out there for a couple weeks and uh, had some, some names of some some Goans. I mean, again, what is a Goan? It's a it's a very hard category to to re- to write through and to to find in the archives because you have Catholic Goans, you have Hindu Goans, you have um, uh, many different Goans in many different sort of diaspora contexts. So again, I don't like to think of the Goan itself as as a concrete category, but the ways in which then Goan Mozambicans became the subject of my research. And I particularly did these two chapters to contrast the idea of the Goan Mozambican to be, again, not a concrete category in itself. So I, I met up with quite a few sort of, I would say, elite Goans in Mozambique who were trained med- at the Goan Medical School historically um, and had had sort of an elite being in Maputo and that they were considered, I mean, through my life histories with many Goan Mozambicans in Maputo, I realized that a lot of, that they had been sort of perceived by many Mozambicans as being Portuguese in some ways, as synonymous with Portuguese. Um, and in other ways, they were they were not, and they were seen as, you know, brown, not black, not white. Um, and the ways in which that category of Goan was very fluid, but in the ways in which Goan Mozambicans, many, again, doctors, lawyers, um, any in the banking industry, uh, how they had decided to stay post-75 and made choices around lifestyle um, and marriage patterns. And, you know, many Goan Mozambicans who had married Black Africans, Mozambicans, you know, chose to stay because they knew the racism of Portugal and the reality of going back there or going back to Goa, for example. So, again, it was this idea of what what choices people made in this post-75 moment of, of where to stay and where to go and, and their experiences. Um, and then I contrasted it with these Goan fishermen who were, again, were a very different pattern of Goan immigration, who was much earlier, late 1800s, um, early 1900s, and had arrived as fishermen and, and, and took up um, fishing on this little coastal area across the bay from, um, from um, and were fishermen and prawn trawlers. And they inherited the boats of the Portuguese because they worked for them. When, they, when many of these Portuguese trawlers, um, owners, left in 75. And they were quite wealthy, but perceived themselves as sort of this fishing community. Uh, I, I went on, um, I went to visit them on the Feast of Saint-Joao, which is the feast of fishermen the world over, and I went with them on their boats. 
And it's a beautiful festival where they take the boats out onto the water and, and bless the boats for the coming season. And so I wanted to purposely contrast the two different kinds of Gullah Mozambicans that were living, you know, 20 minutes away. And now that they've built this, this new bridge to connect, it's even closer. Um, and I wanted to see what those kind of go in Mozambican communities, what was happening to them today in this, you know, post-colonial, post-war, post-socialist moment, and, and what kind of what kind of ideas around community they had. Mm-hmm. And I really find productive the way you historicize and nuance the experience of trauma and the process of decolonization as a form of loss for those in power and ethnic minorities that you called caught between metrics of new and old power. Mm-hmm. And for that, I would like to think, um, how can we think of web of empire, not only vertically, but also horizontally between colonies in which uh, these minorities are caught in between? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, again, this idea of web of empires, um, you could think of umbrellas. Um, again, this is Thomas Metcalf's work in some ways it's influenced me. Um, and, you know, I was a student of Man Stoller and Fred Cooper and this idea of tensions of empire, which are very much about metropole and colony. And, you know, I think we've moved them from thinking not only metropole and colony, but simultaneously metropole and multiple colonies. And so, again, this is where Go and Mozambique get, get, in my work, get put together into this connected, um, this connected uh, horizontal history. Uh, and that opens up a whole new field of analysis because governments were moving between these places uh going to Angola as well that you know again needs to be looked at but I haven't done that kind of work um but that these webs of empire really open up into new unexplored areas of research that we really need to to take into account and so for me then it allowed me again to access this going community of fishermen that I that Rangel had taken photos of incredibly and he had a beautiful series and again looking at those images of this series of going fishermen he took in the early 70s made me and helped me to think through why I wanted to write through this community and their, their rituals of their sensorial rituals around fishing and eating fish and, and prawns and culture and memory through, through this idea of the webs of empire in some ways. And it, it kind of, for me, I guess doing this research with these, these fishermen harked back to, and, and their Catholic ritual festivals uh, to my research on Xavier and thinking about all the Golan fishermen in Nico itself um, and how they were connected and, and thinking about these um, these lost rituals or not so lost in some ways that I discovered, um, which I guess I'd approach in a nostalgic way and realize that actually they were, they were connected in really interesting, profound ways for, for these Golan and their communities. And mm-hmm. um- if you were to think about the Goans case, uh, what can your study illuminate about the broader study of diasporas in the Indian Ocean? You make some important interventions, if you can share some of them with our listeners. Yeah, sure. Um, again, this itinerant quality of the Portuguese, if you, if you don't take that into account, you really can't access what's, what's happening with diaspora making. And there's, a, there's some important work by Eric Maurier Genode and uh, Michel Cahan around this and the ways in which you really need to think through this idea of the itinerant quality and the ways in which go and travel the world. Um, and that decon, and then for me, I guess I was trying to make the link between decolonization itself as diaspora making, um, as the impetus for all this movement. And again, we can bring in the story of the Portuguese. So the Portuguese of, of Mozambique who then, you know, three generations 
in Mozambique who then had to leave and left to return to Portugal, the Reitonados, which is now a new area of scholarship in Portugal. And and what these, and this is, I think, goes back to your question that I didn't answer earlier about the trauma of decolonization. And so for those white Portuguese who left, they can't really talk about the trauma of it, but it was traumatic for them. Um, and the Portuguese Angolans. And this is where one of my chapters on dispossessing things is about people and their belongings and their stuff and trying to get out. And again, I found Rangel had a series of beautiful images of these crates, of people's stuff, and the ways in which they're trying to get out um, with what they had, and that these these things would be the marker of that past of, of their lives in the colonies um, into this unknown future. And his images are beautiful because they they sort of show that that messiness of decolonization, like how much stuff can you fit into a bag? Um, there's always stuff coming out. Um, there's always narratives that are unexpected. And so I used his images to go back to my methodology of the visual, the visceral, and the lyrical. Um, I use his images alongside uh, some of the descriptions of Ryszard Kapuczynski, a, a Polish uh, journalist who wrote, who was in Luanda during the last days of colonialism in Angola and wrote about his experiences of walking the streets. And he kept talking about these crates and these crates and these crates stuff um, at the port. And so I wanted to rub them up against each other. And then I used the narrative of uh, Carlos Garçao just because I, I like this idea of someone who's experienced it, again, as a form of viscerality. And he was a Portuguese Mozambican who chose to move to South Africa at the end of decolonization. And his experiences narrated through um, through a biographer that I recount as a way to think through what his experiences was. And again, these movements in all different directions. So, you know, Portuguese Angolans moving back to Portugal, Mozambicans moving into South Africa, Mozambicans moving back to Portugal, um, the ways in which Portuguese Angolans got caught up in internment camps in Namibia. And so as a result of that, there's still Portuguese Angolans living in Namibia. It was a big community, actually, who never made it into South Africa and got caught there on their way. So again, this is where diaspora making becomes unexpected, surprising, uh, different pockets of populations in all sorts of places. Mm-hmm. And I think chapter five, dispossessing things, really tie nicely with the growing interest in the Indian Ocean world studies uh, of materiality and, and material culture. And you talk about the social life of things, uh, both among the colonizers and the colonized. Um, and you've alluded to that with the cases you've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so in chapter six, uh, driving from Angola to South Africa. What was South Africa's apartheid state role in the Portuguese decolonization? Why was South Africa the first choice of refuge? And what does that mean to say, learn to be white in that context? Okay. Uh, yeah, so that, that chapter actually came about because I, I met a few Portuguese South Africans and I sort of got intrigued by their history and I said, you know, how did you end up here? And I would sort of get a quick answer and I thought there's more to this story than that. And, um, so I ended up sort of locating, you know, five or six people to really do long life histories with. And that's one of the methodologies I use quite a bit is the life history. Um, and for me, that accesses a lot, even through the sort of present absences in their narratives and what they do say and what they don't say um, and what those gaps are. And what I found so fascinating about it was that they sort of ended up romanticizing. And again, this was a narrative that came through in, in all of the interviews I did, both men and women, um, 
sort of all in there at the time that I did this research, um, you know, 50s, 60s years old, vivid memories. They were either teenagers at the time or young adults um, leaving uh, Angola for South Africa. And again, this is where the story of Namibia comes into the picture that I was not aware of whatsoever and that they were set up for re in refugee camps there because this idea of learning to be white. So the apartheid state, you know, didn't want Catholics, didn't want Southern Europeans, they wanted Northern Europeans. And so it was fascinating to think through these gradations of apartheid and the ways in which that narrative of apartheid targeted certain kinds of good immigrants. And so this idea that they had to learn to be white, so they had to learn Afrikaans, they had to learn to be less religious in, in some sort of outward ways. And again, there was already an older Portuguese community here in South Africa that then became sort of a um, host to these, these newly arrived refugees, as they were considered. Um, and again, this is ties into this discourse around the retornado and, and what's happening with all these Portuguese who sort of escaped in some ways and became homeless refugees. Uh, so what was so interesting in these narratives of, of the people that I interviewed um, was the ways in which they would say, oh, well, you know, we were in Angola, you know, it wasn't racist there, you know, my family was mixed, we had family from all over, um, you know, my cousin married a black Angolan, you know, there was always these examples of the ways in which they were not racist and that they had to learn to be sort of act as proper uh, Anglophone whites in some ways in South Africa. And that they did that because that was the only way to survive. So it became sort of a, a response to this question of, of how you lived in an apartheid state and a justification in some ways. Um, and I found that really fascinating to think through. And again, it then unfolded into this other place that needed to be part of the story. And I didn't want it to just leave it with the Portuguese returning to Portugal, but instead this idea that sorry, the Portuguese of the colonies going back to their metropole, but this unpredictable story of them, you know, coming, coming, wanting to stay in Africa, whatever Africa meant to them and, and the kinds of lifestyles that they chose. Um, and, and that where South Africa stood within that idea of Africa. Um, and that's what sort of fascinated me in that particular chapter. And I wanted to include it in the book as well, even though I'd done the research quite a bit earlier, um, because I did think it was a, a complication to the larger story I was trying to tell. Mm -hmm. um, I really find the term that you've used, doubly diasporic, useful, and I could relate to it. Um, I've, I've actually, my first encounter with somebody from Goa, uh, she was my supervisor uh, in my first job. And I wondered about how come she's Indian, yet she has a Portuguese last name. So that led me on a whole rabbit hole research mission, trying to understand this entangled history. And then about the Goan's history going um, to the United States and Europe, um, and in this case, what you call doubly diasporic, really uh, complicate how we understand diaspora formation. Um, and you beautifully illuminate that by using life histories, which I really enjoyed reading. Uh, in the seventh chapter, Renovating in Biera, um, can you tell us about some of the sites and landscapes that you read in this chapter? What do you try to understand by reading this landscape? And what do you call innovative post-colonial processes of renovation of material urban infrastructure? Um, this is a really interesting chapter for me. Uh, it's really unusual uh, that historians would do that. So can you tell us more about your experience in writing this chapter and researching it also? Sure, of course. I want to go back, though, to this doubly diasporic um, because 
it's so funny you had you said you had that encounter around sort of goingness and how why was this person Indian or how was this person Indian? I had the exact same thing growing up, and I remember I had a going friend, and I didn't understand how she was Indian, you know. And maybe in some way that that came back to me later when I to my topics that I wanted to work on. Um, and I mean, I my parents were immigrants to to. America. I grew up in the States. I am diasporic to South Africa and I'm still struggling with that. And so in some ways, I guess I am myself doubly diasporic um, and I'm trying to, to write through that. But I, but I particularly developed that point of the doubly diasporic through the Goans and through decolonization because they experienced so many decolonizations. And it's this fascinating sort of Goan world of travel, um, sort of catching on the curtails of wanting to live in this Lucifer world and then going, oh, this one's now decolonize let's find another place i mean many i even talked to people who ended up moving from mozambique to macau because they wanted to, to stay within this colonial world and not colonialism itself but more about culture language um living within those those ideas and traits that are comfortable to them um so you know we could even say triply dice work i guess um if someone wanted to do that kind of work yeah so moving on to the chapter renovating and bear um it was funny because my editors didn't want me to include that chapter, and I said this is fundamentally important to the book because I didn't want to leave it on the note of decolonization is just about those in power and what's happened to them or those minority communities. I wanted to see what actually happens in the space left over, and I wanted to approach it through infrastructure. Um, I went to Barra uh, just for a visit because I was sort of interested in this in this in the story of the city because it was such a different one to tell than from the story of Lorenzo Marx. And I realized that it had this whole tourism history, and that's something I've been working on in Goa itself, but that it had sort of failed as a tourist city, and it never sort of happened. And I watched this girl dive into a swimming pool, and thought, you know, how is she using the same colonial infrastructure? And it reminded me of that story of the toilets and the ways in which the Portuguese wanted to destroy things on their way out. And I said, no, in fact, they didn't destroy them or that if they destroyed them a little bit, people still managed to use them, to renovate them in ways, and to use them. And this idea that this, these colonial infrastructures were built for a certain white um, clientele and that, in fact, they were being used by a completely different set of African Mozambicans who enjoyed them, uh, went to the movies, went to swimming pools, went to cafes, went to bars, and, and, and what they did with those spaces and how they inhabited them. And I wanted to look through these minor little acts of renovation. So, uh, you know, the ways in which both someone keeps a place polished, the fixtures are polished with a fresh coat of paint, the ways in which a movie theater becomes a thriving community center, um, the ways in which these, these infrastructures get adapted to new uses, and to leave on the idea then that uh, that Mozambique is a thriving place um, and that these spaces left over become something else for, for, for those who live there in the here and the now. And I also and ended with a postcard that Rangel had taken because he was also uh, lived in Vera for a few years and it was a nice way to connect it all um, with a postcard he had taken, a photograph of sort of aerial Vera um, during the war, the Civil War, and the ways in which that image sort of belies the beauty of the city um, and what actually is happening in that place today. So I wanted to, again, sort of leave the book on this, on this note of, of the possibilities of the city. Yeah. Um, thank you for uh, uh, sharing with us um, a lot of personal insights in this book. 
I really enjoyed your reflection uh, reflection at the end from Mozambique to Goa. Um, so can you tell us why is it important for the historians to think about their positionality and uh, think of, you know, writing narratives in which we can access that to understand, you know, their own presence in the research process and the writing and thinking about uh, the past. Um, and after answering that, would you please share uh, something from the book with the listeners just to, I really want people to taste what it's like to read your book. Thank you so much for that. Uh, sure. Uh, again, I, again, I wanted to think about the messiness or the wildness of decolonization instead of this sort of neat narrative of, you know, decolonization happened and then simply country goes into postcoloniality and everything is resolved. But no, in fact, you know, and again, this messiness is not, is at a conceptual level, it's at a material level, it's at, um, it's at a um, thinking level, uh, it's at the ways in which I wanted to approach it as being messy. Um, and I think because Goa's decolonization was so messy, I was able to sort of think through Mozambique is equally messy in some ways. So, Again, I, I like to reflect on an anthropologist in a way to, through my own thinking as to how I approach a topic and, and how I get from one topic to another. And I think you made a really beautiful comment when I first, when we talked yesterday briefly about this interview, um, that you saw my second book as being the continuation of my first. And I found that fascinating because I had never even considered that. I just thought, this is what I'm working on next. You know, So for me, that's a really fitting way think about my work and I'd like to think that my next projects um, will, will also just be the continuation of this long durée of my life and my, my work. Um, so I'll end with, um, with a passage from my last chapter. It's called Reflecting from Mozambique to Goa. And so again, I wanted to do this full circle from Goa to Mozambique, from Mozambique back to Goa. And I'll read, I'll, I'll read this passage. I wrote one chapter already thinking of the next that would follow. I wanted to trace an unlikely journey (coughs) from Goa to Mozambique and then reroute myself by way of Southern Africa. I sought to explore the ties that bind Metropole, Portugal, and multiple colonies, Goa and Mozambique, and third spaces, Angola, Namibia, and South Africa, together in uncomfortable, unsettling, and unexpected ways during colonialism's dismantling. It is those shifts, material and ideological, which transform the colonies into something post that are relevant here. Thus, my emphasis has been less on studying decolonization at the macro level of political transition, but is rather on looking at its more understudied elements as a deeply material yet intimate moment where uncertain individuals interpolated larger processes and experienced messiness, trauma, loss, and resilience along the way. Decolonization was also a historical process by which persons and things increasingly stood in for each other as certain individuals experienced profound personal loss with the fear of starting over or looming ahead. Adopting such a nuanced perspective potentially helps us to understand the multiple and sometimes contradictory experiences of decolonization from those minority diaspora communities showcased here. We must look at decolonization as both a struggle over ownership and selfhood in a period of dramatic transition, and that remains unresolved and ongoing as part and parcel of post-coloniality. We also need to look at the manner of decolonization, its conditions of possibility as fundamentally shaping the post-colonial contours of a place. It is the last book, body, it is, sorry, the last body chapter of this book, returned full circle to contemporary Mozambique as a way to approach decolonization from the perspective of those people, ideas, and things that actively remain in its aftermath, 
you know, put to creative use. I'm going to end there. Thank you. That was really beautiful uh, and nicely brings together the book. Um, the book Portuguese Decolonization in the Indian Ocean World uh, provides a nuanced understanding of Lusophone decolonization, revealing the perspectives of people who experience it. I really recommend this book uh, to our listeners uh, for your beautiful prose, for the gorgeous images, uh, and really organized book uh, that gives you an access to, uh, you know, spaces that usually we don't encounter uh, in reading history books. Um, so, Pamela, we've taken a lot of your time. Um, can you tell us what are you working on now? Uh, what's your current and future projects? Sure. Thank you, Anna, for that beautiful closing to to our interview. Yeah, I'm happy to tell you about my projects. Um, so I've got, I think I'll, I'll talk about three really briefly. Um, so one uh, is is based in Zanzibar. Um, so I've moved up the coast, and it's about a contemporary photography studio um, run that was started in 1930 by a man by the name of Ranshad Oza, who was a Gujarati immigrant to Zanzibar. Um, and what's so fascinating is, again, I found Goans because he studied with a Goan uh, photographer. And unbeknownst to me prior to this project is that the Goans had started up all the photography studios on the East African coast um, and were photographers, tailors, bakers, retailers, which is something I've been, I'm writing about. But it's this particular um, collection. What's amazing is that Ron Shadoza then took, um, passed on the studio to his son, Rohith, and I've been interviewing him alongside with another colleague, Meg Samuelson, who's based um, at the University of Adelaide and is a literary scholar. Um, and this is where the sort of interdisciplinary um, angle that I'm fascinated by comes into the, all of my new projects as well. Um, and it's about photography also. So obviously it's it's through this sort of father and son and this archive of photographs. And we've been I've been writing about bicycles in the archive, sort of playing with some of the images, um, thinking through that relationship between the father and son. Um, I have another piece that I've written about darkness and the idea of darkness and the tropes of darkness in these images, as well as images around the Indian Ocean of the monsoonal sky and the waters and and, and bringing in the, the context of thinking about slavery in, in the context of Zanzibar and what these images say on that topic. Um, so that's an ongoing project. I've written a few articles and hopefully it'll become a book soon, um, co-authored with, with Meg. Um, the second one returns me to Goa, a place that's always in, in my heart. I've been going there for 25 years. Um, and so I love to see what changes are happening. And this project is, is a little bit of a shift for me. It's, it's about heritage and, and design. And what I've been doing is sort of, I, I got, I've written quite a bit about tourism in Goa and I wanted to move inland to the hinterland see what was happening. So I took a sabbatical in 2013. So I started this research quite a while ago. And I lived there with my family. And I got interested in sort of the investments of certain, what I would call heritage practitioners, people from Goa, not from Goa, from other parts of India, from other parts of the world who are living in Goa and really invested in designing the place in really interesting ways. So I, I've taken um, sort of a market books, literature, uh, the idea of the village in Goa, um, cloth, architecture, and food as, as, as subjects of chapters around different heritage people who, practitioners who are investing in it and doing interesting things with, with those objects, if you want to call them that. And so that's going to be a little book um, that's coming out fairly soon, hopefully. Um, yeah, it's actually should be coming out next year. I'm finishing that up. And that's been a nice way to pay homage to Goa in some ways in its contemporary moment people that I, I've come to know 
and love there. Um, and then just the last project is I finally going to write something around South Africa directly. I've been throughout my years, I've been in South Africa for 15 years, um, writing little pieces around different topics. Um, Chicklet, I've written a piece about a Chicklet writer, um, which is sort of romance. Uh, I've written some stuff around the Portuguese community, which I didn't elaborate on, but there's a big Madeiran population who came to South Africa. That's part of this larger story of the Portuguese in South Africa. And so um, I've written another piece around um, aesthetics and necklaces and these beaded necklaces um, that that connect South Africa to um, to Zimbabwe and Bulawayo specifically. And I guess I'm interested in this thinking about Joburg and its worldliness in some ways. So I think we want to put those essays together in the book. Um, I think that's quite a bit, actually, to 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 end on. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited about all my new projects. And, yeah, let's see where it takes me. So thank you, Amit, so much for seeing you. This sounds fantastic. We will be looking forward to all of your projects. Thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored Portuguese decolonization in the Indian Ocean world by Professor Pamela Gupta, published by Bloomsbury in 2020. You can find the book on Amazon and other outlets. This is your host, Ahmed Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.